Hi, it's Bob Safian. You've been hearing me as the host of Rapid Response in this feed for a few years now with short newsy interviews alongside the deeper dives of Masters of Scale. Well, I'm excited to share that Rapid Response is expanding into its own feed. We'll be putting out shows twice a week, focusing on the urgent issues that business leaders are dealing with in real time. So search for Rapid Response in your podcast player and subscribe to make sure you get all our episodes. I'll see you on the other side. I came in the office today on Monday morning and the office felt busy. You know, our campus here felt busy and I think it's a sign that people are being productive. We see the short-term productivity benefits of an extra hour off the commute. We don't see the longer-term, more debilitating impact on learning, culture, creativity that come from having a workforce that's far too separate. Personal productivity is not the only measure of business success. Business is about how you solve problems, and I think you can do that better more often if you're together. That's Mark Reed, the CEO of WPP, the world's largest advertising company with thousands of workers across agencies from Ogilvy to AKQA to Wonderman Thompson. I'm Bob Safian, former editor of Fast Company, founder of the Flux Group and host of Masters of Scale Rapid Response. I wanted to talk with Mark because controversies over return to office versus remote work have never been hotter and ad firms like WPP are wrestling with mandates, possible penalties, and cultural impacts. The future of work is also being buffeted by the rapid adoption of generative AI, and here too, ad agencies are in the spotlight. Mark is particularly outspoken about the disruption he expects from AI, but he also shares specific examples of how the technology is improving output now. Mark's leadership perch across a global enterprise with global clients gives him a unique perspective on what brands and businesses most need to worry about, the risks they face, and the opportunities they need to embrace. Let's get to it. We'll start the show in a moment. After a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news, that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. 
Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. I'm Bob Safian, and I'm here with Mark Reed, the CEO of advertising giant WPP. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bob, and great to be with you uh, today. I wanted to start with some recent news reports about some ad firms instituting in-office work mandates for their staff with promotion and compensation risks for those who don't comply. When you and I talked previously, you said, I'd like to get more people back in the office, but there are different thoughts within our leadership. Yeah. Why do you want people in the office more? And has there been any consensus among your team? Yeah, look, I think the consensus is generally that when people are in the office, they're more collaborative. Ours is a creative process and collaboration is key to it. I think people are more productive. You know, people get inspired from each other. I think the difference is not that we'd all like people back. It's like, is a mandate the right way to go? To some extent, I think we have to inspire people to come back to the office. People have to want to come back. You know, pre-COVID, the assumption was you came to the office and you had an exception to work from home. Sometimes that feels now like you work from home and the exception is coming in the office. That's kind of what we need to shift. And mandates may form part of it, but I'm sort of more of a believer in carrots than sticks. I mean, there's some people who feel like, oh, I don't have to waste that time commuting back and forth to the office or, you know, it opens up new talent pools. There's some folks who are more hospitable, maybe working from home sometimes than in the office. Yeah, look, I, I'm sure some of that is true. But my argument back to those people is like, personal productivity is not the only measure of business success, right? How many emails you answer in a day or how many Zoom calls you do is not really what business is about. Business is about how you solve client problems and how you help clients succeed. And I think you can do that better more often if you're together. Sure, there are times where you can save the commute, but, you know, I was in Mumbai last week. We had a board meeting there and it was really interesting talking to a young woman who works for us there. She commutes in an hour and a half each way every day. Now she comes in four days a week. She used to come in five days a week. But, you know, I thought I'd pull our office statistics, you know, to give us some fact on this. Shanghai, we're running at 75%. Mumbai, 64% average occupancy. Here in London, 52%. Milan, 45%. And New York, 24%. And in the US, I'd say we vary between 15 to 25% occupancy. I think we should be in the office more often in New York. And I think talking to my colleagues and, and other business leaders in Mumbai, they worry about the competitiveness of US business given the attendance in the office, I would say, to be polite. <laughs> I mean, that gap is kind of extraordinary in different locations. It's amazing, isn't it? My experience of working in America is it used to be a little bit of a sort of FaceTime culture, right? And I think people learned in COVID they could get back control of their time. And I think that people are reluctant to give it. So we have to have a different contract, emotional contract with our employees. I'm, I'm not one of these people that says, you have to be in the office five days a week. And, you know, I think we have to give people flexibility, but we need to get somewhere closer to London than we are today in New York. Don't you save money if you don't have people in the office? In other words, if you don't have as much office space, I mean, financially, is it better for the business? Yeah, we save some money. 
But, you know, if you staff your offices to be busy three days a week and it seems everyone wants to come in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, actually it's massively inefficient. You know, we have these buildings empty four days a week. But I think the big thing is around building a company's culture and, you know, how do we train young people? Most of the things I learned in my job, I learned from people around me, overhearing, being in meetings, seeing how they dealt with situations. That doesn't happen on a Zoom call from home. We see the short-term productivity benefits of an extra hour off the commute. We don't see the longer-term sort of more debilitating impact on learning, culture, creativity that come from having a workforce that's far too separate. For some workers, the message that they sometimes receive when they hear, oh, you have to come into the offices, oh, I don't trust you that you're working hard enough how do you balance that sort of trust and what your relationship is with your team? I mean, that's why in one part, while we haven't done a mandate, all I would say is we have one board member closely associated with the supermarket, and I know they've moved their cashiers from Saturday to Thursday and Friday because the shopping week is evened out a little bit. And you see anecdotes about the cheap midweek golf course being busy. I don't want to be too cynical. Look, I think we have to trust our people. And I guess there's a subtext I'm hearing in your words that the number of hours worked is not really the measure. And the magic sometimes comes in those moments when we're together in, in the office. It's not about the number of emails you answer. Not everything you measure is important. In fact, many of the things that are most important are unmeasurable. And there was a time where, you know, frankly, coming into work, well, you came in because you liked your colleagues, you know, and I, I don't think, you know, we we should all be sort of locked away at home you know, on our own all day long either. I don't think that's healthy for people. I think coming into an office and being around other people is, is in general good for people's mental health. I came in the office today on Monday morning and the office felt busy. You know, our campus here felt busy. And I think it's a sign that people are being productive. So I want to ask you about AI. WPP acquired AI firm Satalia in 2021. You announced a partnership with NVIDIA earlier this year. You told me AI is going to fully disrupt our business over the next five years. Yeah. It sounds a little ominous. Can you explain, <laughs> explain that? Well, look, I think that, you know, for the first time we can see that computers can do what we thought only people could do, right? Take photos, write copy, create press releases, you know, not a perfect job of it, but certainly enough for the first draft to help our brainstorming, to inform a creative team. And then if you think further out in the future, you can see the potential for computers to like, totally automate the process. You're sitting in a client office and you want to launch a new ad for Dove, you know, reaching this audience over this period of time at this budget, press a button and it goes out. Now, I think it's some time before we get to that place, but I think many of the tasks we have, AI can play a fundamental part sometimes in replacing the human quotient, sometimes really in empowering people. I mean, AI is amazingly empowering to our organization, but it will be also disruptive. Are you using these tools with clients today? You know, a great example is this work we did uh, in India for Cadbury's, a Mondelez brand, where we took Shah Rukh Khan, you know, probably Bollywood's most famous actor, it enabled hundreds of thousands of small Indian businesses to use him in their commercials so that they could then send through WhatsApp. And Gen AI enabled us to, you know, manipulate his image and his voice, you know, with his permission, by the way, to create these ads. Or we've done an ad for Virgin Cruises with Jennifer Lopez, hence the Gen AI 
allow people to create their own personalized invitation to come on a virgin voyage. We built a creative platform called Imagine. We get quite long briefs from clients, like take a 30 page brief and it will summarize the five key points of the brief. Now, probably need to read the brief against the five key points, but it saves some time. We might use Gen AI to say, come up with a new campaign idea for a new bigger Kit Kat. Actually, I, I tried this and it's quite interesting because one idea was have a bigger break with the new KitKat. Actually, the AI had picked up that the core intrinsic value of a KitKat was this notion of have a break and combine that with bigger. Now, is that the best slogan? I don't know, but I think that it's a starting point from which creative people can take ideas and it shows the potential that this technology is, is heading. You sound personally curious and intrigued about Gen AI. Like you're playing with it yourself. How do you get comfortable with it? And, and you know, a lot of CEOs are sort of struggling with the right way for them to understand and use AI. And, and I'm curious if you have advice for any of our listeners about how you do that. Well, I think like anything in life, you're only going to you know, know about it if you try it and use it yourself. In 2008, 2009, we did a board meeting in uh, Palo Alto and we got sort of young people to come in and get the board signed up to Facebook and upload a video to YouTube for the first time. And I think it's a bit like that where we are with AI. You know, people have to get on to mid-journey. We have a way of working with clients where in an hour, we ask clients to develop a new product and come up with a campaign for its launch. And they can really see what AI can do. And by the way, you're creating a brand for a client in an hour, but sometimes those clients would have taken six months or even a year to do, right? So the increase in cycle time is quite substantial. When you do that, you see what the technology is really good at. It's really good at coming up with ideas, but it doesn't really know what's a good idea and what's a bad idea, right? The other thing it doesn't know is that often in our business, the trick isn't answering the brief. The trick is, is that the right brief or the wrong brief, right? Because clients come to you with one thing, but actually something else is better. And my best example of this is some work we did in Australia. So clients came to us, we've got these free range eggs, the chickens roam over, you know, acres of land, they're very healthy, lead happy lives, and the eggs taste great. Can we do an outdoor campaign in Sydney to promote them? So we put that in the creative department and actually a young woman in the creative department said you know what how about this she said in australia on every egg you have to print the date the egg was laid what about if we printed the number of steps the chicken took in laying the egg so the team designed this fitbit they strapped it to the back of the chicken and they calculated you know, the chicken would take four and a half thousand steps they could print the number easily on the eggs and this idea really captured everyone's imagination. The eggs flew off the shelf. It really brought to life what they were doing. But the answer was a totally different answer from the brief we got, right? Now, AI would come up with a fantastic poster. It's not going to tell you to strap a Fitbit to the back of a chicken, you know? The vision of a chicken with a Fitbit on its back is hard to shake. But so are the lessons about AI's impact and the vast gap between in-office numbers in the U.S. versus elsewhere. Coming up, we'll hear Mark's insights on optimism versus delusion, the new risks in being a purposeful company, and more. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. 
So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning, and I said, you know what? I'm going to just like share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was like sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. Before the break, we heard the CEO of WPP, Mark Reed, make the case for more in-office work and for more reliance on AI. Now we delve into leadership challenges about managing a workforce amid disruption and the rising complications of leaning into purpose. Plus, the line between optimism and delusion and his AI strategy over three months, 12 months, and five years. You know, we were talking earlier about encouraging people to come back to the office. And some of the conversation about AI also makes people who are workers uneasy. Do you hear back from your team concerns about what AI will mean for their jobs? We've got to embrace these tools. We know what jobs they will disrupt, but we don't know what jobs AI will create. And I'm sure it will create many, many jobs. If I look at WPP, probably half the jobs inside the company didn't exist 20 years ago. We didn't have social media managers. We didn't have programmatic media managers. We didn't have search engine optimizers. You know, I could go on, e-commerce people. Net-net, will we have more people or fewer people in the future? I think the jury is out on that. Group M, our media business that's been most impacted by technology, has seen its employment grow quite strongly over the last 10 years because, you know, technology needs people to manage. No one wants to let these computers totally go off on their own. And so the computers tend to cut problems down into finer and finer things that need more and more people to manage. One of your colleagues said to me about you, he said, he's a details person, which he meant in a good way. And I'm curious, what does that mean to you and how you balance between details and strategy as a leader so you don't get pulled into the weeds, but you stay informed about what's going on? Yeah, I think my job is to give people a sense of direction about where we're headed, but also understand whether or not we're getting there. I mean, I think I'm quite a sort of practical person, so I need to understand how these things work in practice. I sort of like to think about it as curiosity as much as being in the detail. People sort of panic a lot about the future, you know, and I think we're an industry that has demonstrated its ability to weather a lot of disruption. I mean, what makes running WPP so fascinating is we deal with, you know, many of the world's largest organizations dealing with some of the most difficult issues in society around, you know, purpose uh, and guiding clients on tricky reputational decisions. And at the same time, you know, we're coming up with sort of creative ideas that really engage consumers sort of at the intersection of, you know, fashion and entertainment and music. We have 7,500 people in China, 10,500 people in India, fantastic business in South Africa, Brazil. You know, that global reach may make WPP hard to manage, but it's fantastic power to our clients. 
I mean, running a business the size of WPP, every day you could find things going on in your business like, oh, that's a disaster. And you could find things that, oh, that's great. Like, how do you know what the balance of those things are? Bad news tends to rise up any organization more than good news. Look, I think you have to ultimately you just have to look at the overall numbers. Are you winning more new business than you're losing? How are your relationships with clients? Are there more pieces of work that you're proud of, you know, showing in to colleagues or friends or sometimes my kids? So they're softer, less tangible metrics. You're right. We won't win every new business pitch much as I would like to. And, and we are a cyclical business as well. When times are tougher economically or businesses cut back, we're inevitably impacted by that. And we're also an optimistic industry. Optimistic is one of our three core values as a company, but we have to make sure that optimistic is not delusional, right? I guess that's probably my task, right? You know, let's not be delusional about things and let's just bring a sense of sort of, of reality. When we talked last time, you brought up purpose and the, the sort of the challenge over the last year that has grown for brands, clients who are thinking or forced to take positions on societal issues. Those two words you use, thinking and forced, that's the interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, I think there was a time during COVID where everyone said companies need to lean into their purpose, they need to do the right thing. And I think, you know, the Bud Light moment was in, in some ways, a turning point that made CMOs and CEOs realize that there was no easy out in this purpose conversation. You couldn't appeal to one group without thinking through, you know, is that really what I want to say? Is that really the right way to achieve my marketing goals? If I get called out on it, am I prepared to stand up for what I believe in? And I think all of those are questions that companies need to ask. We're asked, as you can imagine, to weigh in on many of the topics facing society every day. And we try to only do so when it's directly relevant to our business or to our people. Where people have come into trouble is where they sort of, I don't want to say lazily, where they've done things they thought for the right reason. And then when they've got challenged, they've sort of had to reevaluate it. And there's no way out of that reevaluation without annoying at least half the population. And that is a challenge to people today. You know, there's some news reports recently in the wake of Climate Week that WPP has more fossil fuel clients than any other ad company. And there might have been a time where, well, that was something to be proud of. And now there are some corners that are saying, oh, that's something to be criticized about. But the other thing is there'll be other people that would criticize us for not taking those clients, right? So that's where it's got even more challenged, right? So look, my view has always been that climate change is real, that we need to move to a low-carbon economy, and that you know, energy companies, as I prefer to call them, are going to have to play a role in doing that. Not everybody inside the company agrees with that, and not everyone out there agrees with that, which is fine. I also think, though, that if we were to resign those clients, we might be criticized for you know, a violation of free speech and not enabling them to talk. So I think that's why I think the world has got more difficult today. You know, you can be criticized for both sides on any decision you make. You told me that it can't just be the CEO's personal position on these social issues. Isn't it in some ways, though, inevitably defined by the CEO's choices and strategy? Ultimately, I guess it, it does become my decision but us working for a particular brand or 
or court doesn't necessarily mean I agree with every element of it. You know, I do think that the free speech angle of this sort of cancel culture debate has got more merit than some people give it. You know, mm. we can't be in society where if you don't like what someone says, you try and withdraw their right to say it. Mm. And I have been more, become maybe a little bit more sympathetic to that point of view over the last year as well. So it's a, it's a challenge. You guys are in the persuasion business, obviously. Do you feel like part of your role as a business is to help persuade your clients to, you know, operate more morally, socially, acceptably? You know, we are responsible for one in four, one in five of the world's commercial messages, either creatively or through our media business. And I think with that comes some responsibility to try and shape that. About four years ago, we decided to try and eliminate single-use plastic across our business. And, you know, we've had a pretty good success in doing that. But I think one of the benefits of doing that were the conversations that started with clients about their own efforts to reduce single-use plastic in their business. But one person's persuasion is another person's imposition, if you like. And ultimately, I think we have to reflect the ability for people and companies to have freedom of speech and to advocate their positions and to respect people's intelligence that they'll decide what is right and wrong and what they believe and what they don't believe. What's at stake for you in the choices you're making? I think the biggest challenge we have is figuring out the sort of the impact of AI on our business, you know, in the next three months, the next year, in the next five years, how do we have conversation with clients about how to use us in their business? How do we build AI into the services we offer clients in a way that will keep us competitive? If we spend too much time focusing on three months, we'll forget the future. Too much time focusing on the future, we won't be able to deliver in the short run. Now, what makes me positive is every week someone sends me a new campaign using AI. Sometimes I think, oh my God, there's all these disconnected things going on. But you have to live with some level of sort of disconnection. And I think the fact that people are embracing it is probably better than me trying to sort of control it from the center. You have a tolerance for some messiness in this evolution. Maybe too much tolerance, but I think that you have to you know, have to let a thousand flowers blossom. And the sort of people that work at WPP are kind of innovative, curious people. So the best way to motivate them is to let them do things. And then you have to say, well, okay, these are the things where we're really going to focus our effort. And these are the things where we're really going to make an investment. And I think that's sort of the place we're at today. Well, Mark, this has been great. Thanks so much. Thank you, Bob. And thanks for having me on. Mark's experience at WPP is like a window into the broad sweep of the global economy. What I take away is that leadership requires an openness to change, and that means an openness to uncertainty and risk. What's required is thoughtfulness about those risks, embracing optimism without delusion, and knowing what principles, values, and practices you're committed to standing behind no matter what. I'm Bob Safian. Thanks for listening. And now, a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. 
we talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy. Before we are in full rollout mode, we had stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. I'm Bob Safian, your host and Masters of Scale's editor at large. Our executive producers are June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Chris McLeod. Our chief content officer and interim president is Lori Hoffman. Our producers are Chris Gauthier, Masha Makutonina, Adam Skuse, Alex Morris, and Tucker Ligurski. Our music director is Ryan Holiday. Original music by Eduardo Rivera, Ryan Holiday, and Daniel Nissenbaum. Sound design and audio editing by Keith J. Nelson, Stephen Davies, Liam Jenkins, and Andrew Nault. Mixing and mastering by Aaron Bastinelli and Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Aria Finger, Saida Sapieva, Jodine Dorsey, Alfonso Bravo, Colin Howard, Tim Cronin, Kelsey Saison, Sammy Aputa, Sarah Tartar, Brandon Klein, Brad Worrell, Luisa Velez, Justin Winslow, Nikki Williams, Chineme Azuquena, Mariel Carriker, and Katie Blason. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode and to subscribe to our email newsletter. Become a member of Masters of Scale to get access to a year's worth of courses and content on the Masters of Scale courses app. Find out more at mastersofscale.com slash membership.